So what we have on, on tap for today then is a few more things to say about chapter 12 and then we move into chapter 13 which is about application and we've already had a bunch of pleas to explain the stuff about 1 Corinthians and everything like that so I'll, I'll go to that. But I want today to begin with a couple of final thoughts about pragmatics, illocutionary force, and all of that. Um, now, first of all, an illustration from a newspaper. Remember, chapter 12 talks about locutionary, illocutionary, perlocutionary forces, and 12a deals with performative speech acts. So I'm going to keep those two separate. So in relation to chapter 12, what things count as, here's something that some of you may remember. This was when Clarence Thomas was being considered for the Supreme Court. This Anita Hill made the accusations that he was a sort of a lecherous person and was making these advances toward her. And this is from the I don't know, is it famous, infamous? The Evening Star of DeKalb County, Indiana. Uh, Thomas calls hearing a high-tech lynching. Now, uh, if you maybe remember this incident, 1991, this woman claimed that he was making these advances toward her. And it was very interesting the way she says this. She says here, Hill, a 37-year-old black woman, testified for nearly seven hours, insisting that her accusations of sexual harassment, accounts of Thomas pressuring her for dates, boasting to her of his own sexual prowess, and repeated remarks about X-rated movies all were the truth. Now she goes on to say, and this is the point that I'm focusing on, I felt that implicit in the discussion about sex acts was the offer to have sex with him. See? There you are. So he's just talking about the stuff. She gets the illocutionary and perlocutionary forces that he wants something to happen from it. That's really the kind of thing that we're talking about in this chapter. And this is why I say that this course, this hermeneutics course, is actually so helpful um, just kind of generally. That is to say, in terms of the way you deal with people, the way you interpret situations, the way you interpret reality. This isn't just about interpreting the Bible. It is about viewing anything as a kind of a semiotic system and reading the signs. Now you in your paper for chapter 13 attach that very interesting uh, note on the Newsweek article. And you start to see now, now that was about uh, the United States and, and where that's all going to go. Uh, so you're going to start to see the way things that we're talking about in this class actually have results in other areas. Um, now, moving over to the business of performative speech acts, I want to go back to an article that I put up the very first day of class when we were talking about what all of our hermeneutical deliberations kind of might be encompassing. I don't know if you remember this article. Feminist formula makes baptism invalid, Vatican rules. And I've just uh, marked a couple of paragraphs there. The Vatican has warned that baptism is not valid when the celebrant uses a popular new formula. The Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith released a statement on February 29 saying that a baptism in the name of the Creator, of the Redeemer, and of the Sanctifier is not a valid Christian sacrament. Then down here, anyone who has been baptized using that formula should be rebaptized, the Vatican stated. Well, this is about the, you know, does a performative speech act, I baptize you, 
performed it. Notice how I use the simple formulation of the present tense. I baptize you in the name of the Creator, the Redeemer, and the Sanctifier. They're saying it's not valid, so it doesn't take. It's not a performative speech act. If you thought you were betting, you're not betting. You thought you were forgiving, you're not forgiving. In this case, you thought you were baptizing, you're not baptizing. Well, you remember what we had those three things. You have to say, have the right person say the right words with the right meanings in the right situation. Very, very practical kind of thing right here. Um, now, finally, we did not get on to the addendum on parables, and I do want to say something about that, about parables. Now, in particular, some of you may have wondered why we didn't do parables earlier. We could have done them in connection with chapter 7, non-literal speech. We could have done them in connection with addendum 11b, the kingdom of God. But I waited, and I had to make a decision about this in writing the book. We waited until 12 because the interpretation of parables actually involves stuff out of at least those three and another chapter. Let me put this up on the board. So a parable is a story which is a narrative. So now we're in chapter 6. It's non-literal. Now we're in chapter 7. It uh, deals with the story of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, heaven or the kingdom of God is like. Now we're in addendum 11b. And it has impact. And that's chapter 12. Now that's one of the things that makes parables so difficult to interpret. There's a lot going on here. It's not just something like this. Now, Justin, <laughs> you said yesterday that, uh, uh, that you remember people saying the kingdom of God is God's reign and rule in the hearts of believers. All right? Here's probably another one you've heard. Parables are earthly stories with heavenly meanings. All right? Well, it's not just like that. And the... the um, I was going to say the main thing. I don't know. There are several important things. But let me just say maybe this is the main thing that I want to contend in that addendum. And that is that essentially, there are a couple of exceptions. Essentially, you can divide all parables into one of two classes. Kingdom of God parables and piety parables. Now that is to say this is really a question of, well, you know what, maybe I should sneak this in here on our little thing. Referent. What the heck's it talking about? Referent. That's chapter 4. So is the parable... Oh, let, let, let's illustrate this simply. Parable of the sower and the seed. You have the soils and stuff. Is this about you? This is about the fact that you have four kinds of soil in your heart. What you think the parable is talking about is absolutely critical. So you have to decode a parable. It is talking about something. What is it talking about? Now, I'm contending in this addendum, 12C, that you can essentially divide parables into kingdom parables and parables about how people, Christians, should act. Let's call them piety parables or sanctification parables. I will freely admit to you 
I am making this up. Okay? I mean, you will not find this any other place. I get this simply by looking at the parables and by looking at Jesus' own interpretations of the parables. If you take a look at those parables and the interpretation, you start to be driven to the fact that, hey, they're not all talking about the same subject. So, let's just take a look at what I mean by this. Take your Bibles and go to Matthew 13. Okay, now, in Matthew 13, he tells the parable in 24 through 30 about the man who sows good seed in the field and it has wheat and tares that come up. The wheat and the weeds. Now, in 36 and following, the disciples go into the house and they ask him, explain to us, make us wise, verse 36, of the parable of the tares of the field. All right, what does Jesus say in 37? Take a look. He, in reply, said, the one sowing the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. The zidzania, that's the tares, the weeds, are the sons of the evil one. All right, well, you see, when he's decoding this parable, he's not talking about you. He's talking about the Son of Man coming and the coming of the kingdom of God and him spreading the word. Now, compare that to Luke 11. In Luke 11, we have the parable of the friend at midnight. You know what? I think I may be able to actually illustrate this a little bit better. Yeah, go to 18, the story of the importunate widow or the widow who won't go away. 18.1. And he began to tell them a parable prostodyne, in order that it is necessary that always they pray and not enkakine begin to lose heart. Well, there you've got an explanation of where this parable is going. This is about you. It's about the disciples. See, it's about the disciples that they should pray and not lose heart. So, I want you to notice when you take a look at Jesus' explanation. So let's just put up here, let's just put up here, Matthew 13 and Luke 18. We'll just put that up. Notice that the focus here is on the Son of Man, Jesus. Here, it's on the disciples. Now, that's my basic, as you would call it, heuristic device, Ozzy. So that's my discovery tool here. You look and see what Jesus says about the parable. In the one sense, he's talking about the coming of the kingdom of God with the Son of Man. In the other, he's talking about people, followers. Secondly, notice that this one here is more descriptive. See, Jesus starts right out and starts decoding the parable. This is this, this is this, this is this. He didn't begin the one in Matthew 18. He told them a parable in which the disciples were the widow and God was the judge and, the, you know, see, he didn't start decoding right away. What did he say? He did this prostaw in order that 
All right, so in other words, purpose. Right here, we're already into illocutionary and perlocutionary force. So you can already see that the focus on the first type is on the descriptive nature. The focus on the second type is on its impact. Now, if you'll take a look at the chart, please go to the chart in the book. That's 12C, isn't it, the addendum? Okay. Go to the chart on page one, uh, 314. And so here I try to summarize this, and I'm, I'm giving you kind of two parables simply here to do this. Notice kingdom of God and piety. The referent is history as opposed to everyday life. But I want you to go down to theme here. God's action in Christ for the kingdom parables. Well, he talked about the Son of Man. So is the Son of Man. Here, personal Christian action. The focus, the meaning of the story. Here, the lesson for the hearer. And what's the value? Depiction, description, I wrote in there in my own hand, explanation, as opposed to exhorting, exhortation. So, in general, this is what you find. The kingdom parables are descriptive. They focus on the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. Now, as narratives, of course, we can interpret that on level two because they're descriptive narratives. These over here, the piety parables, are really about every man. They're about you. And their focus isn't so much on what's it like their focus is a lot more on what you ought to do. So the fo I mean, obviously, it's a description of what things are like, but that's not the focus. Now, listen to this next part. This is really, really key. In my opinion, the big mistake that has been made in the history of the church is to interpret kingdom parables as piety parables. See, so in other words, you have a kingdom parable that's essentially about Jesus and his mission and what he's done, and you think it's about you acting. So, therefore, you hear the sermons like of the sower and the seed, not about Jesus sowing the seed and the reaction. But all of a sudden, it's about you and having four kinds of soil in your heart and how you're reacting to the word and all that kind of stuff. It's not about you. It's about him. And if you make that mistake, you're screwed. Because you're not interpreting the parable. You're not decoding it correctly. Now, Two other points. Number one, if you were at, were you at the Esslinger lecture? Okay. Do you remember he talked, of course he's a Methodist, he talked about Eulischer, this, this German parable, well, it's Eulischer, you don't say it's not S-H, Eulischer, this is the German scholar, it's referred to it's referred to in the uh, important resources in your book. Adolf Eulicher, Die Gleichnis Reden Jesu. Never been translated. One of the most influential books in the history of New Testament theology. It is Adolf Eulicher who asserted that a parable only has one point and that you should never try to decode any of the parts. This has seeped like bad water into all exegesis. 
Everybody, even in the Missouri Synod, gets affected by this. The notion that the parable is not an allegory where you can decode, wait a minute, holy cow, Nicole's husband. What do you mean you can't decode? Didn't Jesus say the guy who sows the seed is the son of man and the field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom and the bad stuff is the sons of the evil one? Isn't that decoding the parable? Of course it is. But you know what Adolf Ulicker said in his study in the 1890s? He said the explanation of Jesus is wrong. <laughs> I am not kidding you about this. He said that the explanation of Jesus is wrong, that it was added. In fact, he didn't say it. It was added by the early church later to make the parables look like allegories, but he contended they're not allegories. They are, he said, metaphors, and a metaphor only has one point to it. Now, you can argue all of that, and I'm going to. But the fact of the matter is, how stupid is this idea that that the explanations are wrong. Now, I'm making this point to you guys because you will see Sunday school material and stuff for your teachers that'll talk about parables only having one point. Do not believe it. This all stems from Adolf Hulicker. He wrote two volumes. One was like in 1892 and one was in 1898 or something like that. And this was part of his theory. In addition, if you take a look at what Ulicker's actual one point is, it is so completely feeble as to be laughable. Example, the parable of the sower and the seed. Now he says you shouldn't decode it so you don't have, you know, this ground are the people who are done with the cares of the world, the thorns, you know, the cares of the world, and uh, the good seed is the good people. You're not, not supposed to do any of that stuff. You're just supposed to look, and you're just supposed to have one point. Well, you know what the one point of the parable of sower and the seed is, according to Adolf Ulicker? You're going to love this. All work results in some loss and some gain. Well, how bad is that? Come on, nobody went to the cross for that. You know, just on the face of it, that's stupid. It, it can't mean something that bad. So, number one, the explanation, you know, what I just did for you guys, he would say is completely wrong and misguided because I believed the explanations. And number two, his one point would be a liberal Protestant point that had nothing to do with specifically Christian ideas and certainly not related to the ministry of Christ. So in fact, what's really the situation? Look, folks, they are non-literal speech, chapter 7. And you've got to be able to say if they're non-literal, hey, hey, which ones of these characteristics that are evoked carry over? Okay? So a guy sowing the seed is like the Son of Man. It's a guy, he's putting something out. But there's some stuff that doesn't fit, like the word is not actual little grains and stuff like that. But there's a bunch of stuff where the characteristics do correspond, and a bunch of stuff, or some stuff, where the characteristics don't correspond. So that's this kind of slippage I talked about in the chapter. But you have to realize that you do have to decode. What, Veltz? What are you talking about? What do you mean you have to decode? Well, you do have to decode. Listen to this parable from the Gospel of Thomas. Now, this is a book, a Gnostic Gospel, written in the middle of the second century. Here is a, a supposed parable of Jesus from the Gospel of Thomas. I want you all to listen to this. This is Logion saying 97. Jesus said, 
The kingdom of the Father is like a woman who was carrying a jar full of meal. While she was walking on a distant road, the handle of the jar broke and the meal spilled out behind her on the road. She did not know it. She did not perceive the accident. After she came into her house, she put the jar, jar down and found it empty. Okay, Buzz, what's the one meaning of that parable? Look behind you when you walk. I mean, what's the one meaning? You know why it's hard to figure out what the one meaning is? You don't know how to decode it. Who's the woman? What's the meal? What's the jar breaking? What road is she on? What's the house she was going to? Is, that, is, is, the, is the woman bad or good? See, if you can't decode the darn thing, you can't get an overall meaning. Yeah. All right, what was his reasoning behind this? This is going to be even worse. His reasoning behind this was, he made a distinction between metaphor and allegory. And he said that metaphor was a live thing that focused on one point and had this kind of impact. Allegory, he said, was a sort of a more dead thing that had these correspondences and was basically code. And he contended that parables were metaphors, not allegories. And that, but, but now this is key to the thing, that allegories were actually the product of literary convention and literary cogitation, a literary mind and literary education. Now that's important because he said Jesus was an uneducated Palestinian peasant and couldn't have been trained and smart enough to do allegory. <laughs> I mean, if you're thinking that the God of the universe is incarnate, maybe you shouldn't say stuff like that, you know? But that it, it all revolved around what he thought Jesus could have done and so on. So in other words, I, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question because there is so much about Eulicher's theory that is awful that for anybody to embrace any of it is completely irresponsible. So let's just summarize a little bit. What's wrong with it? Number one, the distinction between uh, metaphor and allegory. Number two, the fact that Jesus couldn't have done allegories. Three, the fact that the explanations in the text are wrong because they allegorize the metaphors. And number four, what you actually do get out of the darn thing is so vapid it doesn't make any difference. I mean, it's just terrible. Everybody takes all of these four things, they, they kind of ignore the reasoning behind it, and then just go to the conclusion about doing one thing. So um, uh, you can see the lie to it all by just going to another parable whose meaning you really are not familiar with, like this thing about the seed on the road. Now, here's another one. Jesus said, the kingdom of the Father is like a man who wanted to kill a powerful man. He drew the sword within his house and ran it through the wall so that he might know whether his hand would be strong enough. Then he killed the powerful man. Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe that's like Jesus and the devil or something. But what are you thinking? What's running it through the house? Is that kind of like you cast out a few demons or something like that? I mean, you know, what are you on about there? So, uh, or is it something like that that's God the Father and, and Jesus wrestling with Satan is sort of running it through the wall? I mean, if you don't know what you're on about, and how you're supposed to decode, you cannot really work effectively at the parable. Did any of the Gnostic Gospels try to have any explanation? Or? No, that's why they're Gnostic. 
They're trying to, they're trying to hide the meaning from people. Yeah. No, no, no. No, they're, they're not really. Uh, you know, and, and by the way, um, I think what changed my mind on this business with parables completely was the parable of the wicked tenants of the vineyard. You know, where you have this guy rents the vineyard out, then he sends the people and they kill them. Then he sends his son and they kill him. You know, they take him outside the gate. Then he's going to judge them. Oh, come on. You mean to say you're not going to say the owner is God, the other guys are the prophets, the son is the son, killing him is killing him. You know, I mean, it's just impossible for that not to be so, that you're just looking at it and saying something like this. No, none of that corresponds. It just means your actions will have retribution. I mean, you know, you're just sucking air with that. Uh, so, uh, so essentially, uh, now, you, uh, Himmler, going back to the, um, going back to your question. See, I think this all revolves around. Now, listen carefully. I'm going to say this. It all revolves around this distinction between metaphor and allegory, and I think where I think Ulicker is wrong is in thinking that linguistically or they're doing something different. I think in both cases they have conceptual signifieds some of whose characteristics correspond. Okay? Now you could argue that an allegory has a different illocutionary force. In other words it's very involved so it tends to be kind of more just explanatory as opposed to something that's um, expressing a feeling or something. So in other words, like in chapter 12, all right? But I don't think linguistically you're going to be able to argue that an allegory and a metaphor are, fundament are fundamentally linguistically different. They're maybe pragmatically different, but not linguistically. So for him to say, oh, it's a metaphor, therefore we cannot find correspondences as we decode, I think that that's a, just a fatal step. You know, it's, it's just really worth hammering this a little bit because almost all the stuff that you will get on parables of a popular nature will still buy into you liquor. Now, the worms turned a little bit for the la in the last 20 years, maybe, and people are starting to see, nah, you know, that ain't quite right. That's just way oversimplified. And then, in, indeed, the last thing, he wrote this two-volume set. So in the, the 1898 volume or something, he actually does parables. Well, when he actually does the parables, he violates all his own rules, you know, and starts actually decoding them and stuff like that. I mean, you can't help it. You just can't help it. So uh, parables are, are very critical, and I'm thinking you will find it helpful, to be honest with you. You will find it helpful if you make this twofold division, and then you ask yourself, am I basically in a kingdom of God parable whose focus is Jesus, not me? It's a description of the, the kingdom of God, as opposed to being more illocutionary force. Now, now, by the way, let me just kind of show you how this would be valuable in interpretation. Just take the sower and the seed followed by the wheat and the tares. Okay? Where does the sower and the seed occur in the Gospel of Matthew? It occurs in chapter 13. There, there are, there's a parable of the guy building on sand and stuff like that in the, in the uh, uh, Sermon on the Mount. But other than that, there are no parables for the first 12 chapters. Suddenly this parable comes. Well, what's the deal with that? Well, let me tell you what the deal is. In chapter 11, John the Baptist raises the question, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? Then the Pharisees start to question whether he's in league with Satan in chapter then his family comes and wants to take him home at the end of chapter 12. That's when he disowns his family. 
and says, who are my mother and my sister and my brothers? These here who are with me are my brother and my sister and my mother. So in response to the building rejection comes chapter 13 and we have the parable. So given that, what does it look like is going on with the parable of the sower and the seed? Well, I'll tell you exactly what it must be. It's a description of and Jesus' response to the growing negativity to him. And it's a description of why his ministry is not being more effective. He comes out as the sower. Some people, their hearts are just hard, like the Pharisees. Other people, hey, they're around for a while. Other people, they're around for a while, but they get choked by the cares of this world. And some people do accept it. So in other words, that parable is a description of the nature of Jesus' ministry and why an explanation as to why that ministry is not overwhelmingly successful. It is a not about Buzz not having four kinds of soil in his heart. See, so when you do it this way, you actually put it within the career, if you want to put it that way, of Jesus Christ, of Jesus himself. Now, wouldn't this be true to say, when you decode it, you have a narrative, right? I mean, like, let, let's say the parable of the uh, wicked tenants of the vineyard. You have, you have a narrative. You have the guy with the vineyard. You have the prophets. You have the son. You have the judgment coming. If you have a narrative, you can interpret that narrative on level two. After you decode it, right? So now, what does that mean? That God sends prophets. He sends more prophets. He sends his son. The well, you read that story on level two and talk about the great mercy and long-suffering of God and then talk about how finally God is going to bring judgment even though he's trying so hard uh, to bring mercy to his people. Now I'm interpreting it on level two, but I'm interpreting the decoded narrative. Now that's why, in my opinion, guys, in my opinion, I think that there should never be a course like, or a big unit like, preaching the parables. Because there is nothing to preaching the parables. It's all about interpreting the parables. Unless you're going to preach a parable parabolically. In which case, you would take the story, decode it, and re-encode it into another parable. I did that once in chapel with, let us call it, marginal success. Because half the people said, woo, and half the people said, what the heck is he talking about? You know? So, Unless you're going to actually do a parable by telling another parable, what are you doing? You're decoding the parable, you're getting the narrative, and you're interpreting the narrative. That's what you're doing. So this is simultaneously easier and harder than it looks. Okay. Any other questions? On, yeah. Um, I was just wondering the, the parable that you said from... Thomas, the yeah, one yeah. with the grains. Uh, about the grains, yeah. Uh, that was a kingdom parable. Right? Oh, I have no idea. Well, didn't you say at, at first the kingdom of heaven is like? Isn't that? Oh, oh, I, uh, you mean, at, yeah, they're thinking of it as, yeah, oh, the kingdom is like a woman. Right. But I have no idea um, what it's talking about. So you wouldn't be able to dis make a distinction there and say, like, you can't, you wouldn't be able to eliminate the possibility that it's not talking about you should look behind your back when... I'm, you see, I'm thinking not when it says it's a kingdom of uh, parable. Of course, now it's non-canonical, and it's something like a hundred years after the Synoptic Gospels. But, you know, I, I mean, maybe they're trying to do the same thing. But I would be, to use that great Brooklyn phrase, chary about 
uh, I, I would be wary about making a kingdom parable a piety parable, even in a non-canonical gospel. So, I, you know, I don't know if maybe like that's an apostle or something. In general, kingdom parables, remember in the chart, are kind of descriptive of the way God's action is. I'm just not sure what part of God's action we're talking about here. Yeah. Andy? Are there other scholar or contemporary scholars that either agree with you or have different categories than you? Um, I don't know about agreeing with me, but different categories. Uh, yeah, in general, people are coming around to seeing that you have to decode. All right, they are seeing that. And um, they will generally say, um, Craig uh, Blomberg is one guy who's pretty good on this. Uh, you know, they'll generally say that you can focus on the God figure in a parable or on the human figure or on the story. I mean, that, that kind of, you know, do something like that. Everybody, though, who's trying to do stuff is getting away from the one point. Yeah. Now, Oh, in fact, let me use that to make uh, one final point, and that is this. You know, when you talk about whether a parable has one point, I mean, I say this in the addendum. You know what? In a lot of ways, any story only has one point. You know, take Othello. Finally, jealousy consumes the object of its own desire. That's one point. Does that mean you don't have to go to see Othello? You know, uh, so... It would be true to say that any narrative could be conceived of as making one overall point. But that's not what these people are saying. See? So, I mean, I, I, and, and by the way, decoding is not interpreting. It's just decoding. So you have the field is the world. The guy who sows is the son of man. Yeah, yeah and then what? So you've got to interpret the narrative on level two at that point. Or like, say, the uh, uh, Wicked Tenants of the Vineyard. It's a good example. Right. Okay. Now, guys, as we move to uh, chapter 13 on, um, uh, on application, I had done this piece of, uh, well, what shall I say, um, preview when we were doing chapter 10. And so let me do that again now. When I was saying what you've done with the two texts is for application, we're essentially reversing the process. There is a target text like Galatians, and I'm the second text, and I read that text against myself, so to speak, what I know, what I believe, um, and so forth. My understanding of Greek. When you apply a text, you essentially reverse the process, and now you read yourself against the text. In the light of that text, what is my life like? What are my beliefs like? What is my goal in life like? And so on. So we still have the two-text idea. The difference is that in application, you reverse the process, and the direction of fit changes. From you to the text, you're fitting yourself to the text, not the text to your understanding. Yeah. Now you said the second part was the only one that is enlightened by the Holy Spirit, correct? What's that? The second text is the only one that's enlightened by the Holy Spirit. What do you mean the second? It says the second text is informed by the community and enlightened by the Holy Spirit. Right, that's what you're talking about, right? Uh, yeah, read the first part of that sentence. <clears throat> what well, says, the personal text comprising knowledge, beliefs, attitudes, experiences, yeah. etc. Yeah. And then a second text which is informed by the community and enlightened by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's because I'm trying to pick up what was in chapter 11. Remember that issue, how does the Holy Spirit come into this? Right. So I'm not saying that you're not a second text if it's not enlightened by the Holy Spirit. I'm saying when we as Christians are doing this, part of our second text is being enlightened by the Holy Spirit, which is not a trump card. 
They, okay, I mean, see, I can see you're just sneaking ahead to that trump card thing and stop it. Just stop him from doing that. All right. <clears throat> now, uh, now, there are a number of items in this chapter. And the chief one, well, we've got the business about assertions, and then we have narrative and the whole business about the Old Testament and, uh, and so forth. Um, let's start in, a number of you asked, the most poignant of whom was Ficken. <clears throat> Could you please explain the argument behind why we believe that the verses that say that women should cover their heads are strongly tied to culture and therefore not something that we follow today and at the same time we say that the verses that teach that women cannot teach or have authority are not tied to culture and can therefore still be enforced today I need to have a better grasp of this I work at Starbucks in a, there's your problem you work at Starbucks okay now this is uh, take a look here. Wait, wait, just to set the frame, it goes on. I know it does. I was just, I was cutting off the context so I could be derisory. <laughs> uh, this is essentially what is on chapter 13, page 327, where it talks about this. And on 326, the section is called Assertions About Conduct. Let me say my piece here, and then we're going to pick this up next time. We'll talk about this further, and then go on to that, uh, that Newton and Einstein stuff with the, uh, with the uh, reading scripture as Lutherans. But take a look on page 326, where this is what I am contending. Assertions about conduct. Some assertions characterize conduct as essentially a manifestation or incarnation of it. Thus, let us say, and I've written this in the margin here, like a homosexual act is a manifestation and incarnation of sin. By contrast, bottom of the page, 326, other assertions characterize conduct as essentially symptomatic of the human condition, not as an incarnation of it, but rather as revelatory of it, and people can read it. Now, maybe this is where people get mixed up, Fickett. I'm not saying that something like the first category isn't also symptomatic and revelatory. It is, but I'm saying it's kind of more than that. In this second class here, I am contending that essentially you have activity which in its cultural context is revelatory, but that cultural context is changeable. So that's the business of the women and the hairstyles or getting their head cover or whatever. Here would be an example. Men kissing one another on the lips. Greet one another with a holy kiss. See, there's, there's not anything inherent about that. That there is something wrong with it as there is with overt homosexual activity. Now, it could be in certain cultures revelatory of, let us say, homosexual activity. But by itself, it would not be. It would not be. And there are some cultures in which it's okay. So this would be kind of like saying this, and I think this is what you have with the 1 Corinthians 11 passage. Paul is worried about what a woman's, I think it's hairstyle, I, I've got that reference for you to take a look at there from Jim Hurley <clears throat> not wearing hats or something like that what that says about her relationship to her husband now Dave this would be something like this it'd be like saying if you're married and you have a ring and it'd be like saying women 
when you become a Christian, don't just take your rings off to show your independence. Because your relationship to your husband has not been altered or negated or something like that by becoming a Christian. There's nothing inherent about wearing a ring that shows your submission to your husband and your love and your respect for your husband. That is a culturalized phenomenon. So if somebody says, if you do, don't do that because the head of Christ, uh, man is Christ and the head of a man is a woman like that, you know, you are upsetting all that, but it's got nothing to do with anything inherent about the ring, just like the head covering. This is as opposed to doing actual activity which is itself wrong. Now that's the First Timothy argument. First Timothy argument is I do not allow a woman to have authority over a man. In that case, by the way, I think it means husband. All right? But whether or not it's that, that's not really my point here. <clears throat> The wife having authority over her husband is not according to God's design. So that itself is a problem. Whether or not you have something on your head or your hair is long or up on your head, Jim Hurley argues it's having your head up, uh, hair up on your head, or whether you have a ring because you're married or don't have a ring, that's revelatory of a condition. It is not itself an incarnation of the condition. That's the distinction. So what you're doing in 1 Corinthians is revelatory of your relationship. Having authority over the husband is actually incarnating the relationship. I know this is extremely subtle in many ways, but I think it is very real. And that's why Paul all of a sudden argues in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 11, is it not a shame for a woman to have her hair cut? See, he's talking about the message that it sends. The message that it sends. Once you talk about message, you're talking semiotics. Okay? And once you're talking semiotics, you are talking cultural relativity. Okay, we can pick it up there on Monday. Take a look at that article. Good. Thank you.